Hello and welcome to another episode of Addictions Edited. Today I will be speaking to Dr Gillian Shorter. Uh, Dr Shorter is a senior lecturer at the School of Psychology in Queen's University, Belfast and has done extensive research on uh, drug consumption rooms, on alcohol outcomes and uh, many other things. She's also strongly involved in the Drug Alcohol uh, Research Network which we'll talk about um, a little bit later. Um, but we're going to start with drug consumption rooms. Um, uh, Gillian, so you've, you've done a lot of research on drug consumption rooms. So to start with, why do you think that drug consumption rooms and evaluating them is, is important? So drug consumption rooms are essentially safe facilities where individuals can use drugs that they've obtained elsewhere under supervision from another person. So they're quite, they can be quite simple in design all the way up to very complex. Uh, so you can have people in mobile sites, so they can be in vans or they can be in fixed sites such as uh, sort of attached to hospitals or treatment centres or completely independent. The key element there is that there's just somebody keeping an eye on the person who's taking substances um, and that in itself can help uh, reduce overdose or the risk of overdose um, and provide a bit of support and community for some of our most vulnerable individuals in society. The reason it needs evaluating is because these are very controversial, even though they shouldn't really be controversial. Um, I'm a firm in the they aren't controversial camp. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'm alone in there. Uh, other times I've got great company. They're a little bit controversial because I think sometimes people feel that individuals perhaps should be abstinent from drugs and that that's the goal. Um, and that may be a goal for some, but some people are just not quite ready for that. And they still deserve our help, support, and more importantly, they deserve as much health care um, as anyone else does uh, in our society. So I think for, from an international perspective, it's quite interesting as well with the research that you get. Um, so I know that one of our um, SSA funded uh, PhD students is looking at comparing drug consumption sites across Canada um, and the UK. And so uh, because Canada has drug consumption uh, sites, quite a lot of the evidence comes from there. Um, is there any reason why Canada has, has kind of embraced this in a way that the UK hasn't? I think it all comes down to local need. Um, I've also visited the Vancouver site and it's it's um, my pleasure to also be one of the supervisors on Ben Sher's team. So hello to Ben um, and your uh, <laughs> PhD. <laughs> uh, but they've been ahead of the game in a lot of harm reduction initiatives for a long time now. We used to be the forefront here in the UK, but we've kind of slipped a little bit in more recent years. Uh, there's still time to come back maybe with our drug consumption rooms, but certainly um, Vancouver and other places around Toronto and elsewhere around um, Canada have been sort of looking at this problem and seeing this as a solution for the community, for people who use drugs, for the police, uh, for the neighbours and businesses around these centres to try and reduce things like the enormous overdose deaths, to reduce things like drug-related litter, um, an open drug use scene, um, and just generally to try and look after the health and well-being of, of people who use drugs. And they've been doing this for a while, and then certainly in some places in Canada, it's very cold. Now, Vancouver is not as bad as some other areas. Certainly Toronto gets very cold in the winter, and there's other places that are absolutely astoundingly cold. Um, and when you have individuals who are vulnerably housed and living on the street, this poses some really interesting issues. And they've responded in a myriad of ways, housing first, 
lots of different initiatives to look after individuals, but one of the core ones has been drug consumption rooms. The other place there's been a lot of research come out of is uh, Australia as well, particularly around um, Melbourne and in Sydney. Um, and I think it's really important to sort of acknowledge that they have also been forefront um, of, of initiatives there, particularly around some of the community evidence of how it's reduced um, the sort of uh, public drug use situation, drug related litter um, in the Sydney area. Um, around King's Cross. So it's been absolutely instrumental. And we're really grateful to our colleagues around the world for the evidence that they've given us that we can now use to try and encourage um, a pilot that is funded here in the UK. And so uh, you mentioned outcomes there about kind of drug related litter and uh, um, uh, things such as that. Uh, I mean, I guess going straight into the the evidence base that, that's building and on which such sites um, you know, are either commissioned or not commissioned. Uh, what is the evidence base like? What does it? What does the evidence suggest the impact of having a drug consumption site is on on those communities? Well, it's the evidence base is growing and it's getting more enormous by the day. So we're talking about reducing overdose deaths, um, improving access to healthcare, reducing unsafe drug use behaviours, reducing emergency healthcare. So there's so many reviews out there. Pardo, Salmon. Um, you know, so many reviews that are coming out with evidence here that's summarising what's been going on uh, in relation to sort of looking after these vulnerable individuals who just want access to healthcare and community support. Um, the other thing I think for me is, I think we don't do enough personally, and I'm a psychologist, so this is my hobby horse, I'm sorry. Um, but I think also it helps build people up in ways that other services don't. These are people that are often missed in really well-meaning and excellent services that we have up and down the country, the treatment services that we have here and the support services, particularly in the charitable and voluntary sector, but not exclusively so, is phenomenal. Yet there are still people that we miss. And so what drug consumption rooms can do is really help facilitate the capability, opportunity and motivation for people to make healthful changes for themselves and to live a life worth living. And um, the quality of life is really just so important um, and, and we can really help make very small incremental changes that can have massive impacts for people's lives. The big thing that always comes up though is why are there no randomized control trials? Comes up every time. And it's, the, it's a really simple answer. We know these places save lives. We have an evidence base across multiple countries to show that it does so. So it's not ethical to randomize one area to have a drug consumption room and one not to. So I don't always believe that the no randomized control evidence part works that well. Um, and I think we have to really sort of think about what is the base of evidence that we need to get these centers open. I think I didn't answer your question at the start, but I'll answer it now because I've remembered what you asked <laughs> about why we need a, a, a pilot and, and an evidence here. And it's really to demonstrate that it does work or doesn't. And if it doesn't work and it's not the solution that our community needs, then we have to be prepared to say, no, this is not the right solution. Um, and that's just the job of a researcher. We can't just go into things with ideology. We have to try and back it up with some evidence. And so this is what we want for the UK. We want to try it out. And if it doesn't work, then we have to think of something else because we have extraordinary drug-related deaths here. It is frightening. And each one of those people 
is like it's like a stone dropping into a pond there's a ripple effect the people that they may have used drugs with their families you know the wider community in which they they belong the people who've known them for years the people who love them it's not just the person who dies when someone dies of a drug related event it's a wider community thing it's the police officers who have to attend the sudden death it's the emergency personnel who had to try and intervene and were not successful it's the people who observed this you know it's not just the person that dies but it's a wider effect so, so most most people who are listening who's kind of i don't know uh, social media algorithms are tuned into this kind of thing it's unlikely they'll have missed the uh, unlicensed drug consumption uh, van that was run by Peter Kykrant in Glasgow. Uh, and you authored the um, the evaluation of that. Before we get into kind of those findings, did you did you spend time with Peter and uh, around the van? Well, unfortunately, I didn't get to visit oh. him because COVID was on and we didn't want to put anybody at risk who was at the van. So unfortunately, I didn't get to see it while it was operational, but I was in, in touch with Peter fairly regularly via WhatsApp and the phone to sort of get an idea of what it was like to run the service as it was running. Um, I have since been in it and it's just a phenomenal service that he's been able to create, but he did this out of his own money and resources. Incredible. He was, he, you know, he wasn't working at the time, so he gave up his employment and his ability to earn money to run the service to show what could be done. Now, he was very instrumental in this, but he did remain independent from the evaluation. And this was a deliberate act from myself and the rest of the members of the team, Andy McCauley, uh, Kirsten Trainer, and Alex Evans as well. And this was a, a deliberate act to make sure that we were not influenced by him. So it's been it was um, open from September to sort of around April, May time. Um, so it was only open for a little while. But in that time, we were able to record 894 injecting events. So primarily powder cocaine, um, but also heroin as well, or powder cocaine and heroin together. Uh, we were able to intervene in um, nine overdose events involving eight people. And as you know, uh, Rob, that's an, you know, emergency healthcare is the most expensive healthcare. So anything you can do to try and stop um, our very exhausted and wonderful um, ambulance service having to come out um, to an overdose situation is really very welcomed. I think we only had one ambulance call out. Um, and of course, we use the appropriate um, amount of, of healthcare at all those uh, junctures and, and communicated with our ambulance services to make sure that we were doing the right thing by the clients. Of course, there were many more that came to the service above the 894 we were able to record. Um, and the reason for this is because it was run by volunteers. It was often very, very busy. There was a lot of discussion and conversation with people about injecting practice, how they were getting on, what their challenges were, you know, and how we could help them out with that. If they needed healthcare, where could we, where could we funnel them onto? So there were lots of conversations happening and sometimes the injections didn't get recorded. Um, now that's sad for me as a data person. <laughs> But I'm delighted yeah, yeah. and actually it was a, probably one of the greatest privileges of my career to be able to document what happened in that van and to tell the story of those wonderful people of Glasgow. Um, and I'm sad that we don't have one in Glasgow at the moment um, and I hope that the clients of the service are doing okay um, in the interim. My, la my last question that relates to drug consumption sites. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, we need to see whether they work or not. Um, 
and and also about the the importance of those kind of outcomes that that get measured around uh, around litter, about health, around families, about communities, and and, and all of those things. Um, I always find it really interesting to look at uh, like kind of the optimization of interventions because you can look at uh, you know you can test an intervention and find out that it does or does not work, but if it's really been really poorly delivered, like you haven't spoken to the police, you might find that drug consumption sites don't work. But actually, that's just because you haven't spoken to the police. It's just because it was a badly set up drug consumption site. So, like from the evidence and from your experience, what what makes for a, a high quality drug consumption site? Um, you know, what what elements improve the quality uh, and the effectiveness of a of a drug consumption site? Rob, you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> I love optimization <laughs> as well. <laughs> Um, so I think the kind of the key thing is communication with people in the local area. I think that is absolutely central. The police are important actors, as are businesses, people who live nearby. But the most important group, um, and, and vitally so, is the people who are going to use the site. I'm very fortunate to have worked with um, Matt Southwell in Coact and Euroenpud and Ben Sher, who we've mentioned earlier on, um, to help sort of develop a peer-led model to understand what people might want from a drug consumption room, what, uh, why they might not attend, what would encourage them to attend, and so on and so forth. If you don't do that early work, then you will fail because you're, the people who use your service are everything. It doesn't matter what healthcare service you know, for us as academics, you know, we are constantly speaking to our students about what they want and then tailoring the provision to that. And the same is true for a drug consumption room. They're the single most important group. I think the police are very important too because they will receive complaints about this. People don't understand drug consumption rooms or don't think they're a solution for communities. Um, and they're scared and afraid and they don't know what's going to happen if we open one or what if it's really awful for our community and then we can't close it again. So these are really genuine issues and fears that people have. And what we have to do is have honest and open conversations with people to help them feel reassured about this and to help them feel like if there are issues, which there always are, Rob, you know yourself, like you try anything and there's always a wee hitch here somewhere, somewhere else. There will be issues, but reassuring people that you take what they're saying seriously your interest, you're not going to make fun of them or say, oh, you don't care about blah, blah, blah. You know, what you're really interested in is engaging with people properly and then having those channels open if and when there may be issues and things can be adjusted. So I think communication is absolutely central and sort of rising to the level of the fears that people have. People are worried about children and proximity to schools and things like that. If there's already an open drug scene where individuals are seeing people using drugs, it's better that that's somewhere where people are safe, they're warm, um, you know, they're not at risk of overdosing outside sort of schools or workplaces. They're not in alleyways where they might not be found. You know, they've got somewhere to go to the bathroom. They've got somewhere to wash their hands. You know, these are things that we want for our community. Um, and it's trying to really engage with people and meet them where they're at in relation to their fears is so, so important to the success of any drug consumption room. So um, just as, as a researcher, uh, so this is, you know, it's, it's an incredibly complex intervention. You know, you couldn't describe it in any other way. It, it has to meet the uh, definition of complex. 
Um, which and that's that's a long way from kind of brief interventions, and which you've researched as well. Um, as a researcher, how how different is it um, uh, studying kind of something that can be quite discreet and, and detailed and specified compared with something as as um, I don't use the word pejoratively, but something as potentially messy as a as a drug consumption room in in terms of research and data. How, how have those th- two things compared in your career? So I'm really interested in just anyone who maybe is experiencing some harm from alcohol or drugs or at risk of harm, um, but doesn't really feel like treatment is there for them at this point in time. Um, I do that because I'm not actually a treatment provider. So um, I think it's kind of about playing to your strengths and what you know. And also I've known a lot of people who, you know, maybe have tried treatment and maybe it hasn't been the right door for them at that particular time. So I'm a firm believer that we use harm reduction to keep people safe as best we can. And so they're not that different in my head. (laughs) They can look quite different. And I think drug consumption rooms can be really simple. It's basically just a table, a chair and a sharps box. And then you can fiddle all the other things around it as the nature of the um, service kind of grows around it. I think it's good to have some kind of referral onto healthcare like you know, support for abscesses, mobility, mental health, um, maybe treatment referral pathway, uh, pathways onto opioid substitution therapy and so on and so forth. I think they're very important, but at its core, it's just somebody keeping an eye on someone else with a table, a chair and a sharps box. And then I also do some brief intervention work, which you've kind of alluded to as well. Um, I'm really interested in that as well, because it's really about empowering people to make sort of healthful choices by themselves um, and just providing the tools to help them do that. Uh, so they're, to me, they're quite similar, but they're also quite different. I'll take, I'll take you on that. <laughs> um, so they, 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 uh, they target, and you, 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 uh, you mentioned this, they, they target or target or their, their interventions designed for the, a, a similar group of people. And that's, um, you know, people who use drugs or alcohol, but who don't seek treatment. Um, is is that population unfairly categorised as people who, who don't want to change or who aren't yet ready to change? I don't think it's unfair, but I also feel, you know, that it's people still deserve to live, even if they're taking substances like we have with alcohol, particularly. Um, we know people have a range of experiences and and levels of harm associated with alcohol from uh, real sort of entrenched long term dependence all the way down to Um, I don't drink at all. And there's just such a wide variety of reasons why people drink in between there. And, you know, it's not for me to say why somebody should or shouldn't be doing things. What I'm really interested in is to try and keep people as safe as possible while they're using whatever substances they're using. And that's kind of been my philosophy. I've never really been in the pointy finger camp. Maybe it's because I've got personal experience of different aspects of substance use. And alcohol use, um, maybe it's just because I've seen what that kind of pointy fingery approach does for people um, and that it kind of encourages them to see themselves as other um, and to see themselves as, uh, you know, maybe not worthy of support and help. And that's just not my philosophy at all. We're all um, deserve a happy and healthy life. And if anything I do in my work and my career can help support that, and I'll be a very happy woman come retirement. <laughs> um, so I, I think one of the fascinating, I, I worked in treatment services myself for, uh, for, for, for several years. Um, 
and I think it's a fascinating area because even people within treatment services don't always, uh, you know, it's rarely that people in treatment services 100% want to be in treatment services. There's that kind of sliding scale, there's ambivalence, and, and there's people who one day want to be there and another day don't. Um, and so you end up kind of looking at lots and lots of different, uh, lots of different outcomes. So for some people, um, you know, you're looking at helping them with, with housing or with um, uh, kind of negative thinking patterns. And some people you're helping them with safer injecting with drug consumption rooms. There's a whole wide range and it has to be very person centred, I've always thought. Um, recently, or certainly in the last 10 years, the, there's been a, a greater and greater emphasis on public health interventions, people that are, things that apply across the um, across national uh, populations. Do you think that like the kind of personalization approach and the public health approach sometimes pull in different directions or? Um, I think, I think you should always measure what's useful to the service. We have ethical approval for a drug consumption room. Um, should anyone feel like they're ready to open one, we have ethical approval. Um, we can apply for an amendment. So we, for a very basic evaluation of the service, um, you know, looking at what people are using, the kind of risks they might be under, what's, what equipment they use, and any other services to support. So if anybody's interested in that, and um, we pull that together, bringing in sort of research from the States, Alex Kral and other colleagues um, have sort of helped develop that along with our work with Peter Crikent um, up in Glasgow. So we have a bit of a sort of basic sort of evaluation set, but we're hoping to do something a little bit more sophisticated should uh, the time arise. But certainly from the alcohol side of things, I've kind of only really touched about my alcohol work. Um, we've developed an international core outcome set, which is mm. like basically a minimum data standard. Um, if you're sort of developing a brief intervention for alcohol that you should use to see if it works or not. Um, and the reason we did that is because the literature is really messy. So when you talk about the value of public health and, you know, it's really hard to determine if there is a value if we're all measuring things that are different and in different ways. Exactly how many outcomes did you measure? You did a, 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 was it a systematic review on this, I think. Exactly how many outcomes did you find? Oh, Rob, we did the stupidest systematic review ever. There were so many papers in it. It was an absolute nightmare. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so we had 405 trials and they measured uh, 2,641 outcomes in 1,560 ways. So it's just, but how are we supposed to bring any of that together to give evidence? And our fabulous public health colleagues are doing their absolute darndest to get us across the line and reduce harm there. Like, well, what are they supposed to do with all those variables? So we came together as a, as a big grouping. So there's 19 countries were involved in this core outcome set, including sort of a core team of individuals. And we were funded by uh, Alcohol Change as well. So we're very grateful to our funders for that and supported by Inebria, which is the international network um, of brief interventions for alcohol and drugs. Um, and so we have this 10 outcome set, which makes it very easy for people. You can measure other things because we use like brief interventions or, you know, in pregnancy studies in criminal justice in prisons in um, workplaces, primary care, hospitals, like we use them everywhere. Um, and so these are the kind of 10 main things. So you can measure other things alongside. But the primary things really are thinking about um, sort of average consumption, recent consumption. So the average consumption is things like the audit C, 
Uh, recent consumption is the standard drinks in the past week um, in grams, so we can compare across countries. Impact of alcohol use was alcohol-related consequences, so sort of problems people might have, alcohol-related injury, emergency healthcare use, because it's really expensive. Um, and then the last one is quality of life, because it's very important that we live a life worth living too. Um, and so the idea is that if you're putting in a grant, then there's already an international standard. So you can save yourself some words and just say you're going to use that and justify the other measures you want alongside. Then you can, you know that your work is going to be useful um, in meta-analyses because it's going to be the same as other people who've used it. So it's going to be included and used a little bit more often. And two, the people, that are sorry, three, sorry, the stakeholders that, you know, that are interested in this work, you know, they know that this is what we should be measuring. Um, and that we're getting outcomes that actually met the matter. And then there's an ugly one, which we'll kind of call three and a half, um, which is about sort of selective reporting and bad research practice. But we don't want to talk about that because um, it does stop that sort of selective reporting because you should be using the query concept as it's the international standard um, and sort of people who wiggle around with their protocols and change things to find significant findings. It makes it a little bit harder to do so. I, I liked. I, I think we've we've already covered this in um, in optimization, but I, I liked that you had uh, was it fidelity of of the intervention in there as 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 key as well. I think it was one of one of the one of the additions that that turned up later. Yeah, so I think as well how people um, describe their intervention varies a lot. So if you find that it's effective, you're going right. So this was effective in I don't know. Let's say Mexico. Um, like, how do I bring that over here? Or if I, if we have one here in the UK, how do we, you know, how can somebody in Mexico use it? If we don't tell people what's happening, um, how it varied and even just be upfront about how the things went a bit wrong. Um, things do go wrong in research. And sometimes, you know, allowing people into the black box to see, you know, how things went wrong, mainly so they can avoid the same uh, pitfalls can be really, really helpful and save people a lot of time. So I think, you know, being upfront about things like, you know, how you measured things, um, you know, how you describe your intervention, how did it go, you know, did, did some people in one arm or the other, you know, did they sort of use your intervention when they were assigned the control? And just being upfront about these things, you know, nothing in research works perfectly. Um, and being upfront about things, those sort of things really matters. Um and, and from a from a kind of methods or a kind of you know practical experience as a, as a researcher point of view, off the back of, of what turned out to be an impossibly large systematic review or impossibly complicated systematic review, you, you then you know you embarked on a on a, an international e Delphi study. Uh, now Delphi studies strike me as um, a bit like kind of herding academic cats at the best of times. Uh, how was it running that? Was that quite straightforward or, or was that um, uh, difficult it was a lot of fun actually <laughs> what i would have said was uh, one thing i would have loved is to have um, more people involved and actually when i was telling you about making some of those mistakes once we had completed some of the aspects of the core outcome set we actually um, were tackled on our diversity by some uh, researchers in uh, south america about sort of maybe the lack of inclusion of individuals there now they would use uh, brief interventions slightly differently to us. So they would use them inside treatment um, and outside treatment. Now, the one that we 
created was really for uh, people who are not active treatment seekers at this time, whereas they would kind of integrate it a little bit more um, into sort of the treatment provision that they provide. So it's a slightly different focus. So we also reran the Delphi there um, in uh, South American countries supported by Inebria Latina. Um, and we find that they were interested in slightly different. They want a kind of a broader sweep of things mm -hmm. that they wanted to include. There were a lot of overlap um, in terms of the things that they prioritized in the Delphi and the one that informed the core outcome set. And it just goes to show that you have to keep refining your practice, making sure you're inclusive in your practice. It's not just about including people who use drugs or people who, um, you know, drink hazardously or have, you know, whatever it is. It's also about trying to make sure that we include countries all around the world. Um, now, the remit of both core outcome sets is slightly different. One is much more sort of broad treatment on outside. Ours is very specifically for people who aren't seeking treatment. So the, the remit was slightly different, but it taught me a really valuable lesson about you know, making sure that the prioritization is there, that we get representatives from all the countries that could benefit from these things. And I learned a valuable, valuable lesson. Um, and we have, we, we kind of course correct a little bit now in our work to try and make sure we're as inclusive as we can. That's not to say the core outcome set is invalid and people are using it all around the world, including our South American countries and our South American uh, colleagues and friends. Um, but just that to remind us that, you know, inclusivity is the world is very small, although it's quite big, <laughs> um, but it is very small and we have to do what we can to be as inclusive as possible. So there's one of my um, dirty laundry pieces that I'm hanging out to dry. And you can read all of those <laughs> in my <laughs> profile. And it, it's a pleasure to not only have this error pointed out to you, but to be able to be involved in the solution and understanding and, and how lovely and gracious my colleagues were. Um, and, and sort of involving me in that that discussion. Fantastic. Um, in, just slightly in the interest of time, I'm going to move on to the uh, Drug Alcohol Research Network. Um, what's, what's your role in the drug alcohol in DARN? So DARN is a collective of researchers across Northern Ireland who are interested in alcohol and drug use matters. So that's everything from treatment to the kind of work that I do is outside treatment. Uh, we have practitioners, social workers, criminologists, sociologists, um, psychologists practicing and non so it was kind of to bring together all that sort of expertise in sort of a grouping and I co-lead it with Anne Campbell um, and Kathy Higgins uh, at Queen's University we're primarily based at Queen's University but not exclusively so uh, we also have some phenomenal colleagues at Ulster University like Julie Harris um, are doing really important work on sort of transitions around heroin um, injecting to smoking and sort of looking at sort of harm reduction practices. Um, essentially, we do a lot of work around Northern Ireland that doesn't normally come up on things. So we sit on like uh, policy panels and sits on the advisory council for the misuse of drugs. So, you know, we, we do a lot of sort of pro bono and, and sort of quiet in the background work to understand the context, both north and south of Ireland. It's a really interesting thing, and I think a lot of people don't think Northern Ireland is worth studying. Um, we completely disagree. Not only do we are we part of the UK, obviously it's a contested issue in many ways, but also with the sort of Brexit changes, we have some border issues. And of course, the Good Friday Agreement also requires that uh, legal policy north and south must not 
um, jeopardise the health of anybody across the island of Ireland. So we have some really interesting things that happen here and we wanted to pull together our resources because we are the expert in local issues. Um, and, you know, if people wanted to approach anyone in Northern Ireland for research in drugs and alcohol, they'd be warmly welcome to get in touch with Anne, myself or Cathy. And it's not that you'd have to work with any of us, but we would know who to put you in touch with. So you want a criminologist, you might want sort of Julie Harris, or you might want Andy Percy, or if you're looking for a psychologist, you could have myself or some, you know, so it's really about sort of, and we get to have fun conversations about substance use and, and alcohol and the challenges that we face. And then we produce, um, you know, everything from local, national and internationally relevant research, depending on, on what's happening and, and what's needed. So it's, it's a really fun space to be part of, and it's, it's a joy to lead. Um, and to have as part of my career. And uh, what are are there? What are the specific um, or the kind of primary issues around addiction uh, in Northern Ireland at the moment that are kind of you know specific to that um, that area? So a lot of the issues we have are we have a lot of issues around alcohol. We have some fairly substantial um, alcohol related deaths here, so it's always something that we have to think about tackling from a multi sort of perspective so we're thinking about structural issues like marketing price and so on and so forth as well as the individual level things like um, brief interventions and so we're always working in the in the alcohol space here um, and this is particularly since sometimes we have slightly different sort of timings around things like minimum unit pricing so the Republic of Ireland has brought that in um, and so we're looking to see what's happening and of course we don't even have an assembly right now so that's pretty tricky uh, for us in relation to um, health matters. On the drug side, we have um, uh, some of the most frightening statistics of young people dying uh, of drug-related deaths. Um, our young people, you know, 18 to 25, um, are dying at a rate that is truly frightening and, and heartbreaking, particularly for the colleagues in Darn who do frontline work um, and colleagues who are aligned with DARN in the services. It's absolutely heartbreaking and our services here are working tirelessly to try and make a difference. Um, but it is something, you know, and drug consumption rooms and trying to um, encourage our policymakers and our politicians, our community personnel to open a drug consumption room so we can try and save some of those young lives. We also have a slight peculiarity here in that um, Something that doesn't happen very often um, in Europe is we would have not just um, sort of the gangs that we have here, a bit of a throwback to what was going on in the Troubles, but typically gangs would be quite uh, violent towards drug dealers, but we would also have um, a situation where our drug users are at risk as well um, of sort of punishment beatings and so on and so forth. This is something that came up in my recently our soon to graduate PhD student, Nicole Miller, um, her PhD sort of revealed quite a few sort of really stark and difficult sort of interactions that individuals have with some of the darker elements of society, just as drug users trying to um, get on with their lives. And um, the last thing is opioid substitution therapy. It seems to be very delayed here uh, for reasons I'm not massively sure about. Um, and we're trying to work on, on that and making sure that that is available for those who want that service, um, want that kind of stability in their lives and that they get what they're asking for. 
So, you know, individuals who want methadone shouldn't be offered buvidol or buprenorphine. They should be getting the element that they want that they think is right for them in the same way that we choose drugs for other um, matters uh, and we make choices that are supported and um, endorsed by our, our healthcare providers or negotiated with our healthcare providers. We certainly shouldn't be mandating that someone has something over something else uh, because it's more convenient for us. We must really know about um, why it's important to be that particular substance for that person and how it fits in with their life. So methadone has to be taken fairly regularly. We did have a bit of liberalisation over COVID. It seems to have gone back a little bit. But there's an increasing push to put people on things like Buvidal and so on and so forth, which can be really helpful for people because it doesn't involve sort of regular use and, and you know regular contact with a healthcare provider in the same way. But it also can give people a clarity of thought that they're not quite ready for, um, and particularly if they have long and extensive trauma histories, as many of our individuals here do. And this is something that's fairly unique to us. The troubles is an enormous trauma hangover for all of us um, here. Um, I dare you to throw a stone in Northern Ireland and not hit somebody with some kind of story. Um, even our young people um, are hearing stories through sort of transgenerational trauma and so on. Um, and the legacy of that can be um, some of the issues that we have now with alcohol and drugs. So it's quite a complex picture, but um, we're, we're doing what we can to try and improve things for our people. Um, and we care very, very deeply um, about making the outcomes better for people who use drugs and people who use alcohol. Fantastic. It's, it's such important work. Uh, and thank you so much for, for coming on to the podcast to talk about it. Um, Dr. Gillian Shorter, thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm.